The Water Values Podcast, Session 99. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, my name is Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. We have a fantastic show for you today. We have Mark Slavens of Scott's miracle Grow, who's going to talk uh, fertilizer and water quality and the impacts uh, that that fertilizer has on water quality and what we can all do to help maintain our water quality, how to use fertilizer properly. And he'll also get into some of the things that's coming from uh, the Scott's miracle Grow side and how they've made their fertilizers uh, more environmentally friendly. Uh, before we get to that, though, uh, I would like to tell every, thank everyone for their ratings and reviews on iTunes. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever podcast directory you listen to the show on. We'd really appreciate it. It helps others find the show. And uh, we have a fantastic legion of um, listeners who've left those ratings and reviews. So please consider doing so. Uh, and also today we have another Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. We're going to get into some of the deals. There's been a lot going on uh, in the water water sector uh, concerning business deals, and so Reese is going to kind of fill us in uh, on some of the recent deals that have been uh, been closed. So without further ado, let's get to the Bluefield on Tap segment. Well, Reese, welcome back for another episode of Bluefield on Tap. Great to have you with us. Uh, there has been a lot of activity in the M&A space in the water sector. Can you kind of fill us in on what's been going on? Yeah, absolutely. It's good to be back. And uh, there has been a lot of activity. The obvious um, topic that people have been focused on more recently is the Suez acquisition of GE Water. That's been sort of on the books since uh, fourth quarter of last year. And now that that's gone through, people are, I guess there's a lot of questions about, well, what does that mean? What does GE know that we don't know why they're selling off. I think part of it is they, uh, they're focused on other parts of their business, which I think are more critical. This also helps pay for the Baker Hughes um, venture that they're working on. But I think in the case of Suez and M&A as a whole, I mean, there is a lot of activity. I think part of that, given the discussions that we've had in the past, is that Infrastructure is in the news. There's clear demand and interest in the infrastructure space, uh, water and wastewater, and that's not just the U.S. While a lot of it's focused on the U.S., we're seeing things happening in Asia as well as Europe. And you know, as far as Bluefield goes, and we're currently working on some research right now where we're track. We've gone through about 500 deals over the past three years, and that ranges everything from EPC deals to technology filtration uh, deals as well as the utility in the utility space. And I would say 85% of that is in services and equipment. That seems to be the lion's share. And I think the total value of that three years is over $60 billion. But I think the, what's the driver? Infrastructure's in the news, the need, but also the, um, the opportunity. We've gotten, seem to be getting past the recession spending period, you know, it's post-recession in the U.S. Austerity measures in Europe seem to be lifting a little bit. So I think there's that's a big reason for a lot of the movement. Yeah, so the GE water uh, acquisition by Suez is interesting. It, you know, that it was kind of 
at least I was a little surprised when that was announced that GE was going to be uh, selling that division last year. You know, what, what, what was GE providing? What, cause I know they, they built GE water through the acquisition of a number of different companies. So what, what kind of, you know, what were they selling? Yeah. I mean, so GE, they, they basically provide chemicals to the water sector, but they also, um, pull together the technology and equipment and sell systems to, you know, largely industrial companies. That's what there's a good match there. I think prior to the acquisition, to the announcement, everybody was thinking, oh, it'll be a private equity company. But on the outside was Suez um, that actually had a bit of a, uh, an open spot as far as uh, in their strategy and their portfolio in the industrial space in North America in particular, where GE obviously is really strong. So what they, you know, so what they bring to the table is they're going to be services related to it, but things like MBR technology and, like I said, the chemicals. And quite honestly, the brand name of GE goes a long way, so it's really valuable to sue us, I think. Yeah, yeah. So what other types of deals are we going to be seeing here? You know, we've seen some big ones. Are there other big deals that are coming on the horizon, you think? Are there any? Have there been any announcements that we need to be aware of? acquisition of Innovize. Innovize has a bit of a unique history. It was part of, it was spun out, or it's part of MWH Global that was acquired by Stantec uh, this past year. And, and Innovize has always been somewhat at arm's length within the MWH and also in Stantec's uh, business, partly because Innovize is a software and solution hydraulic modeling software provider to water utilities um, largely, and as well as uh, over 50% of their customers are other EPC firms. So in the case of Stantec, you know, basically Enterprise was supplying their competitors, but they were highly profitable, which was really interesting. And what I think that what's interesting about this deal, it's also just maybe indicative of what's happening in the smart water space as a whole is there's a lot of interest there for investors, but also people who are already active in the water space, including EPC, other EPC firms, because the margins are a lot higher. When you start getting it, you know, when you move beyond infrastructure and just basic engineering and design, your your profit margins, they start jumping and going from the, you know, the mid-teens up 20, 30%. And in the case of Enterprise, they were above 50% margins. So I think that that's why they're really attractive. At the same time, it was a private equity company that acquired them. So, you know, there'll be idea I, one would expect with the EQT for four to seven years and then be spun off to someone else. But I think the other thing is there's real opportunity in smart water space. It's still early stages for data and analytics in the space. I think there's, it's not, as I've said before, that the technology doesn't exist. It is that it's really the adoption and some, some of it is just, inertia at the municipal side of things yeah yeah what kind of multiples are we talking for uh for these acquisitions do you have any idea yeah i think the eqt enterprise deal was 16 so oh wow that's, that's a, yeah. yeah i mean so it wasn't um it's not like the top line um revenues were super high but the, yeah the multiple on this was was really high and i think in a way, this is something that companies in the water industry are struggling to deal with. It, it is a different, 
you start getting into technology, you're dealing with PE ratios that are, that are definitely a little bit higher and you gotta pay for it. And you're competing against private equity who have a, you know, a tolerance for, and uh, ability to, to take on such, uh, such ratios. All right. Terrific. Well, Reese, thanks so much. You've been great giving us another uh, update from the markets on uh, Bluefield on tap. Really appreciate your time. We'll talk next time. Yeah, it's great, Dave. Thanks. Look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Reese. Bye. Take care. Isn't Reese fantastic? Really appreciate him coming on and, and sharing with us some of the more current events in the water sector. Today, today was obviously the deals that have recently been closed in the water sector. It's always good to get that, that kind of current analysis. And I like to I like to think that that complements very well the uh, deeper dive we do into the topics, uh, on, you know, that on uh, on the feature interviews. And so uh, we have Mark Slavens today from Scott's Miracle Grow, who's a fantastic feature uh, guest on the podcast. Uh, he's going to talk water quality and fertilizer, as I mentioned earlier, and it is just going to be a a really good. A show to listen to. You're really going to learn a lot of things about Scott's Miracle Grow. You're going to learn some things about uh, the uh, the fertilizer industry and and everything things we can do to help maintain our water quality and still fertilize our lawns in an appropriate manner. So, with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, for starters, how about telling us a little about your background and how you got interested in water, please? Yeah, David, thanks for having me on. Uh, my background, so I actually grew up in working in the golf course industry in the western United States. And so um, through both education and working directly with professional turf management, um, water management was extremely critical there. So making sure that we were mindful of water we were using, especially as you entered periods of drought, um, so that you could you know, find that balance of good quality turf grass and playing conditions while still being very careful of the environmental impact you were having. And so so through schooling, I um, invested a lot of my um, education and, and went on to do a master's degree um, out west focused on water use and, and really understanding ways we can manage turf grass with less water, um, which was really great. And then um, following that, I actually moved out east um, to pursue a, a Ph.D. at Cornell University, where in the East Coast, you know, instead of having issues more around water quantity, you know, areas in the east like Chesapeake Bay, Great Lakes are very focused on water quality issues. And so I specifically did some work there looking at the impact of, of turf grass management, specifically in urban slash residential areas. Um, and how those management practices could actually impact water quality. And so gave me a, a nice, well-rounded perspective of both how we use water to and do it in a way that um, minimizes the impact, but also as we manage um, kind of agronomically our, our different plants, how we can have the smallest impact possible to water quality as well. Got it. Now I want to come back to some of this, but but before before kind of following up, could you tell us a little about what you're doing now? Yeah. So today I, I kind of wear two hats at Scotts Miracle Grow. So I've I've been at Scotts for about seven years, and I run the research and development for our Scotts business, which is everything that has the the kind of Scotts Green logo on it. Um, designed primarily for lawns or, or turf grass management. 
But I also um, wear a, an interesting hat for the company as well, where I'm um, head of environmental affairs also. And the reason I am is um, the majority of the, the things we focus on from an environmental standpoint um, are focused around water because we're, we're very mindful of our impact we might have to water from a company standpoint. And so I also help focus on other parts of our business from a kind of environmental slash sustainability standpoint where I help our controls team, which develop products that could be herbicides or insecticides or other technologies to help control pests, looking at alternative solutions or minimal impact solutions we can move into. Um, along with uh, working on, with our growing media or, or soils teams to look for more sustainable solutions for our product ingredient list to help um, hold and manage water more appropriately. So I get the chance to wear a lot of different hats and, and be involved in a lot of different aspects of the business. Terrific. Now we're going to get into kind of what you're doing with Scott's miracle Grow, but I want to go back to uh, what, what you indicated when you started out West and you worked for these uh, turf management and golf courses. And, and I'm just going to take a guess that that was probably around the time that golf courses were exploding in popularity out West. Um, yeah, go ahead. You're, you're right. So um, I started working in that industry in 1995. It was very much around the time when Tiger Woods was gaining popularity and golf in general was booming. And so you had a lot of development and focus um, on golf courses and residential areas surrounded by golf courses. So, um, you saw uh, large land areas being converted um, to this use, and so putting a lot of strain on on kind of natural resources. And so, what you know, what was great is that actually led to I think more awareness and consciousness of of practices, and and really allowed that profession. So golf course superintendents and um, those supporting, you know, from an academic standpoint, supporting those industries really start to put more focus on the impact of, of golf courses on the environment, specifically around water use. And so you've now seen a, a huge shift in um, how they manage water and, you know, from converting non-usable or non-playable areas to more native habitats to reduce water use to high um, efficiency sprinkler systems and more kind of controlled um, environmental situations where they're, they're reducing water use. So. Um, you know, that, that industry has been very progressive, I would say in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years from this standpoint. Uh, so let's, let's follow up with some of the things you said that you're doing now with Scott's miracle Grow, And I think one of the first things I want to want to ask about, cause, cause you said, look, you moved East where it's more of a water quality focus, uh, rather than in the West where it's water quantity. But what, one of the things that, um, I thought would be good because this is this podcast is being released in the spring. People are starting to think about fertilizing their lawns. Homeowners are, are thinking about that. Uh, you know, what is the state of kind of water quality uh, in the, in the U S from uh, the perspective of a homeowner who's looking to fertilize their lawn? Yeah. I'll, I'll, let me give you a little bit of background. So in the early two thousands, I think we became more mindful of the potential impacts of um, fertilizer products, both from a residential standpoint, but also from an agricultural standpoint and um, other uses, the, the potential unintended consequences of using these products on water. Um, and so the last thing we want to do is put down nutrients in uh, on the land, have them run off or leach into water and, and have adverse effects. And so through a lot of work um, with 
the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, um, the Great Lakes, you know, we started to understand how different management practices could actually impact water quality. And so we, um, we took a pretty um, aggressive approach to reduce the risk of our products and ha having an impact on water quality. And so I would say the first and most important thing we always try to make people aware of, and, and you still see this today, and it's something we need to continue to push for, is people applying products and having that product um, land on areas it's not supposed to, and most specifically hard surfaces. So if we use our products, um, how they're designed, and they hit the lawn or hit the garden, and they're you know kind of within that dense vegetative um, space, which is a lawn, the risk of the, that product getting rained on and moving off off site from that location is very low. So we can actually reduce that risk just by making sure it's applied to the right location. But if people um, actually apply product and it goes on the sidewalk and they don't clean it up, then that's a straight path to the, the storm drains and um, straight path to our water systems. And that's something we want to try to avoid. And so we've done a couple things to really help do that. We've really increased the um, on the back of our products, the instructions and cleanup messaging around sweeping or blowing um, product off of hard surfaces back onto the lawn. We've also um, invented a technology we call EdgeGuard, which is on all of our fertilizer spreaders, which is a deflector shield. So if you're walking close to a body of water or a hard surface, it actually um, ref it deflects the fertilizer product from going out that side and also closes down how much product comes out so it compensates for only covering half of the area as well so you don't um, accidentally put product where you're not supposed to so i would say that is first and foremost the most important thing that that can be done um, but you know we still weren't satisfied with just that we we actually worked with a lot of academics and environmental organizations did a lot of work on um, specifically phosphorus and the impact our product could have on water quality. And we actually um, began to understand that although phosphorus is a plant essential nutrient, because turf grasses in particular are so efficient at finding nutrients um, and have a very, very fibrous root system, you rarely see turf grass being deficient in phosphorus. And, and, and also we tend to have sufficient levels from you know, either native soils or from fertilizing for, you know, several years for the grass. So we actually did a lot of work, and this took several years to do this. We, we decided to take all of the phosphorus out of our lawn maintenance products um, as a way to, even though the amount of phosphorus that potentially could get into water was very low, to just even eliminate that risk even further. And so it was uh, a process we started in about 2006, and um, in 2013, we were able to completely go phosphorus-free from our lawn maintenance products. Uh, so, so, okay, so I've used the edge guard before. Um, I, I will admit that I have, I've probably been guilty of not cleaning up uh, uh, stuff that has hit hard surfaces, mainly out of ignorance. Um, and so that's, that's good to know. Uh, and so the, and the, the phosphorus... Essentially, I had someone from the Midwest on who was saying, well, in the Midwest, it's not really a nitrogen issue. It's more of a phosphorus issue. And yeah, yeah, yeah you're absolutely correct. And so it all depends on um, essentially the chemistry of the water. But for 
in the middle, phosphorus tends to be the limiting nutrient. Um, so there's an imbalance in the water. Um, so as you add phosphorus, that's the limiting nutrient to algae. And so once they receive that, it allows them to actually thrive and reproduce. And so that's why you tend to have phosphorus problems in the freshwater bodies. Um, but when you get to areas where you have um, estuaries or, or salt water, which Florida is a great example of that, um, nitrogen tends to be the limiting nutrient. And so that's one of the, the nutrients we're very focused on now um, because the more nitrogen you have in a product or potentially that reaches those water bodies, you can then um, spike harmful algal blooms there as well and cause damage. Yeah. So let, let's talk about algal blooms in general. Um, uh, so in terms of the harm they cause, can you kind of just describe what harm harms they cause? And then, and then from there, talk about how we can kind of uh, combat them both proactively, uh, which I think you've, you've done a little bit already, as well as kind of the, the reactive, uh, uh, the reactive remediation of algal blooms. There's a couple reasons that algal blooms can be um, damaging. So the first and, and, and foremost primary reason is that when you have these algal blooms, they're, they're like a plant or any other kind of living organism. Um, so they respire and they um, photosynthesize and, as well. So they take nutrients out of the water, but they also um, deplete the water. And this is the primary problem of oxygen as they're, they're growing. And so as you see these blooms become more and more pronounced in areas where water tends to be more stagnant or you don't have a lot of uh, free-flowing water into there into the water to bring oxygen they will actually deplete the water system of oxygen and so that in effect will kill off um, you know fish and other aquatic organisms and when that happens that essentially perpetuates the situation so as you have fish die off, those fish decompose and they release a, a slew of nutrients as well and it continues to feed the cycle. So you're adding more nutrients to the system. The algae then continue to take up those nutrients and continue to bloom even further and then it just continue makes kind of an anoxic situation for the, the area. Um, so that's problem number one. But then you get into certain algae um, or cyanobacteria as well that can um, actually provide or put off toxins that can be very harmful to humans and other um, species as well. And that's one that I think is becoming more and more of a concern. Um, I know in Florida, there's a lot of uh, people looking at that um, in particular where, you know, you may have um, these harmful toxins being released into water. And, you know, if we're either swimming in those or um, it ends up getting into drinking water or things like that. That's something we want to be very mindful of as well. So um, both both things can have pretty devastating effects on kind of overall water, like human health and environmental health. Uh, in terms of combating algal blooms, how, how can we go about doing that? Uh, first and foremost, it's keeping the nutrient source out of the water as much as possible. Um, I mean, that's, that's the simplest thing to do. Um, yeah, that's, and, you know, yeah, that's the proactive approach, right? So that, yeah, yeah, that's the proactive approach. Um, and then there's a lot of effort obviously in go, going into how we can actually reclaim or clean, um, 
nutrients from waterways. And so you're seeing a, an investment in a lot of technologies that could potentially mine algal out like these algal blooms, turn them into beneficial fertilizers or other um, sources of, of nutrients that could be land applied. And um, I think that's an interesting space that we'll continue to see further development. So once you see them bloom, it's a way we can actually harvest those nutrients and get them out of the system. Um, but, you know, it, it becomes very difficult. Once things get into the water, the water system becomes so complex because you, you have um, nutrients that get into the groundwater, you have groundwater recharge, you have um, subsurface flow from the groundwater into surface waters, and, you, you know, you essentially create a, a pretty vicious cycle that can be hard to alleviate and also that can have impacts for decades because, you know, when you get into these deep aquifers that have more kind of historic water, a lot of the times when we're seeing issues from water quality, we, we actually are seeing some of the impacts from things we may have done 10 years ago to 50 years ago that are like finally flowing through the hydrologic process um, and getting back into our water. And so, you know, some these things, not only are the things we do today not just short-term, um, they don't just have short-term impacts, but we also, when we try to put fixes in place, we may not see the impact of those fixes for a long time because of kind of the resurgence time of, of water as well. Hmm. So, so we're talking, it's a real long time frame, and, and there's a lot of unknowns really uh, from what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we, that's one of the things we have to, and it's tough to do, be patient and know that, efforts we're making today will have an impact. We just may not see those impacts within six months or a year or sometimes even five years. So um, we have to, you know, often stay the course and continue to be diligent and work. Um, and long term, we're going to, you know, for the next generation, we're going to, they, they will start to um, see the benefit of the work we do today. But um it may not have a quick turnaround time. So we've, we've talked water quality. Let's, let's pivot a little bit, talk about water quantity. Um, for the homeowner that wants to uh, conserve water in their lawn or garden, how, what's, you know, how, how can they do so? Um, I mean, does Scott's have any, you know, kind of recommended course of actions for, for water conservation in home and garden or lawn and garden, excuse me? Absolutely do. And, and this is an area where we're seeing a lot of good investment in technology as well. So we always, you know, start off by making sure um, people plant the right plant for the area they live. So whether that's a grass or, or different um, shrubs or trees in the landscape, you want to make sure they're, they're appropriate for kind of the agronomic zone you live in. So you don't want to plant a what we call a cool season turf down in an area that's pretty hot. Um, hot or has high temperatures because you're obviously going to stress that plant out and it's going to require a lot more water versus uh, a warm season grass. So, uh, you know, plant selection is first and foremost really important. But one of the things we we always teach people, which is counterintuitive, is um, feeding appropriately is one of the um, best things you can do to actually reduce the amount of water used. And the, and the reason that is, is um, you're promoting deeper growth of the root system. The roots are able to mine water um, deeper in the soil. So you can actually water deeper and less frequently. So you in that way, you reduce evaporative losses um, and kind of that shallow root system from developing. 
and it overall makes the, the plant more hardy. And secondly, the reason this is important, and this is something a lot of people don't think about, is a lot, you know, if I'm watering my lawn, all I'm trying to do is have a green lawn. And often we're trying to make our lawn green through water when all it really needs is a little bit of food. Um, and so if you actually uh, apply lawn food to your to your lawn, it you can get the same green lawn with up to 50% less water than just watering alone. And that's something we try to promote to people as well. So it helps you get the same result with fewer or less input. So, um, and no, I was just I was just going to ask how much how much water um, is is needed just to kind of maintain you know with with that recommended watering schedule how much how much water does all, does grass need I, I imagine it might vary by species but it, it varies by species so if you you live more in the southern U.S. and you have a warm season grass like a Bermuda grass or a St. Augustine grass those grasses. Um, generally require anywhere from uh, an eighth of an inch to around an inch of water per week, whether that's through rainfall or through supplemental irrigation. Um, and then when you get to the northern grasses, they tend to use slightly more water. Um, and so, but they're, they're obviously going to grow in a, a shorter time period because you have snow up north, so you're not watering them as frequently. But um, they usually will need at least an inch to maybe an inch and a quarter per week of water to really just be lush and green. It doesn't mean, though, that's what you have to give them. And this is one of the things we try to teach people as well is that grass is actually a really hardy plant, and it can go for um, 30 to 60 days without any rainfall or irrigation. It can naturally go dormant and you know kick in survival mechanisms. And when rainfall returns or you know, you want to irrigate again, um, it can recover pretty well. And so that's, that's, that's an important fact that we try to, to help people. So, but, but it, it really varies by site and location and how much shade you have, or if you're on a slope, um, things of that nature, but those are kind of general rules of thumb for irrigation. Now you just mentioned something that, uh, that I think a lot of homeowners, uh, probably scratch their heads about, which, which is shade. Um, you know, I, I'm sure we've all had patches of our lawn that are that are shaded, and we have trouble getting grass to grow. I mean, do you have any suggestions for for how grass can grow in the shade? <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's always uh, troublesome. So, um, when it comes to water, when you're in the shaded areas, you know you're going to need essentially, if it's especially heavily shaded, um, at least half as much water. So, overwatering can be actually pretty problematic, and for most grasses, overwatering is more detrimental than underwatering just because it can promote disease and other pests from kind of attacking your, your grass. Um, but within the shade, you know, obviously your species selection is critical. So um, in the south, there's not a lot of really good options for shady um, species. St. Augustine grass tends to be the best in the northern climates. Uh, we always recommend going to the fescues, so some of the fine fescue species are, are more shade tolerant, and they'll thrive in the shade with less sun. But anytime you get to, you know, kind of under four hours of um, sunlight in any area, it, it becomes really tough to grow grass. And so there are some alternative species you could start to move to that could provide some type of ground cover. But, you know, you really start to see the moss and other 
things naturally compete and creep in there that can do better in those um, situations. Got it. Now, um, what what about uh, your experience uh, working with drought uh, and how how Scotts kind of helps um, uh, homeowners uh, with their lawns in in drought stricken areas? Yeah, within drought, it, it gets to be um, be pretty challenging. So, like I mentioned, a lot of times people you know, begin to water through irrigation to try to keep their lawn green. And so what we try to educate people on is you can really, you know, cut back during times of drought and give uh, less water than you would anticipate, allow your lawn to um, go slightly brown or completely dormant during times of drought. And a lot, and then once rains return, um, it will naturally recover. And so there, there's definitely limitations too. You wouldn't want to go beyond kind of 30 to 60 days without any irrigation you you want to give it some you know slight irrigation just to keep it somewhat hydrated so it can its survivability is increased um so i think that's one of the things that's really important i already hit on the um ensuring that you're feeding your lawn to promote deeper roots and kind of preparing the the lawn for kind of hot dry periods because it creates more of a kind of carbohydrate reserve in the root system and more energy for it to draw on, and it'll actually recover much better and faster um, if you do that. But the last thing that I think is really critical is getting more into the um, irrigation space and the new technologies that exist there. So um, for residential landscapes, you're seeing two, two really important things um, going on. You have a, a new model of uh, irrigation controllers, which we refer to as smart controllers, and these are ones that would replace the more dial and set of time um, controllers, and they work off of uh, either historic and or historic and predictive weather patterns. So they'll measure what's going on. They'll know if it rained based on local um, weather data from weather stations, and they'll actually help you water based on what's really happening. So instead of setting it and forgetting it and having your water come on three times a week at 6 a.m., it'll come on when your lawn actually needs water based on what's going on around you. And that can actually save easily 30% of water use for a homeowner. Um, the second thing, um, and this, you know, a lot of credit to the irrigation technology companies for this as well, they've invested in new sprinkler heads as well that, um, that are called rotor heads that have a lower volume stream so you have less pressure less kind of water just misting off into the air or potentially running off um, that actually make irrigation applications extremely more efficient um, and reduce the amount of overall water use uh, for a residential landscape as well by you know that kind of 20 to 30 percent so so there's a lot of things people can do today to have a really great looking lawn but use you know up to 50% less water than they traditionally do. So can I follow up on the, on the kind of, I'll call it the moisture sensor uh, for lawn irrigation. And um, I've had, I've had clients who, who I've talked with about, uh, you know, like incentives for installing that type of system in their lawns to conserve uh, water use during, during the summer when, you know, water peaks for the utilities are, um, are up there. And so, uh, how far away are we? And, and I should say no one, no one has, we've, we haven't implemented any, implemented any programs, but I'm just kind of curious, 
how far away are those types of systems from widespread application? Uh, so I would say they exist today. Um, all of the major um, companies that invest in irrigation technology have today, you know, kind of smart controllers and they're bringing them to the industry. So it's just a matter of um, kind of the professional installers and kind of the irrigation technicians around the country becoming more comfortable with those and starting to adopt those and use them um, within their installations. And so today we have a lot of technology that's available, um, which greatly reduces water use and can help people be smarter about how they manage water. Um, and we're just going to see even better investments in that in the next, you know, five to 10 years. In fact, we we now have technology and, and the smart irrigation controller as well uh, we're bringing to the market along with a soil moisture sensor um, that will help you water your garden or your landscape more appropriately based on real-time <clears throat> data that's going on in your soil um, because we know that this is an, a critical place to to be and uh, it will help consumers be more successful in the in their lawn and garden practices yeah. Well, not only do we have smart homes, now we're going to have smart lawns. Um, That's right. <laughs> uh, so I, I'd like to um, I'd like to to follow up on on kind of what I've heard about a new partnership that Scott's Miracle Grow Foundation is entering into. And so, can you tell us a little about uh, about this new partnership? Yes. Yeah, so um, we recently founded uh, what is called Scott's Miracle Grow Foundation, which is a uh, 501c3, you know, nonprofit organization for a company to be dedicated to uh, a number of causes for our company because we're, we're very committed to essentially creating social value. It's something that's really important to our company and our culture. Um, and one of the areas we're, we're really focused on, obviously, is um, water, as we're discussing, and kind of reducing impact of our product and, and others' impact on water quality and quantity across the, the world. So, um, in regards to that, we recently just partnered with the Everglades Foundation, um, and the reason we partnered with them is they um, have created what is called the George Barley Water Prize, which is a, um, a, a foundation or a call to action for scientists around the world to really help solve problems related to water, um, specifically around phosphorus. And so we are working with them. And we are the presenting sponsor of the George Barley Water Prize. Um, and the reason we think this is really important is we want to, you know, help incentivize technology and innovation that can help solve problems um, that, you know, essentially we've all created related to water quality. Um, and so the prize offers, you know, to scientists $10 million or the, the grand prize is a $10 million prize to the person or team that can help develop the essentially the most cost-effective technology to recover phosphorus from fresh water bodies. And this is a, you know, obviously a global issue. And so we want to really get behind that and help support this cause because we know that long-term it's something that's going to help um, improve overall the overall kind of environmental um, situation and the value for all of us continuing to have fresh water to uh, enjoy and drink and and everything such as that. So it's going to be a, a really exciting partnership. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, $10 million, it sounds like you should get some great entries uh, competing for that. What kind of, can you tell us a little more about what the timeline is? When do submissions have to be in? Uh, I, I know you said you just kind of announced this partnership. So my guess is there's a lead time, but, but can you give us some of those particulars, please? Yeah. So the, the timeline is, uh, I mean, it's essentially starting now and we're going to really kick this off um, essentially now as we create more awareness to this, this water prize. But it's a program where it's going to be multi-year um, kind of development timeline. So four to five years, people will be working and developing technologies to, to help solve this. And we're, we're aware that you can't just come up with a solution overnight. So we want to really work with people and continue to have check-ins every year and, and measure progress and, and also award prizes throughout that same time period. So over the next four to five years, working up to the grand prize, you know, to help fund um, some of this innovation. Um, so it's one that um, over the next several years, hopefully we're going to start to see some really great technology that can help provide the solution. Because today, the challenge we run into is, uh, you know, the, the technologies that can actually remove nutrients from water bodies are um, pretty inefficient and they're cost prohibitive as well. So um, we need to just drive more efficiencies to that space so we can do it in a way that it doesn't um, cost so much to to remove you know these nutrients from water bodies right and it's from what from what we talked about earlier too it just sounds like there's not only are there a lot of inefficiencies there's a lot of unknowns in it um so i so i would imagine this uh the george uh, the george barley prize uh is intended to to kind of reduce those unknowns as well uh, it is. Okay, perfect. Uh, well, Mark, you've been absolutely great today. I, I learned something every time, and today's no exception. Uh, now, I, I feel terrible for having not swept up all my fertilizer um, that's kind of gone onto my, you know, the, the walkway or something like that. So I will, I'm going to make an effort to do that from here on out. But, uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you, about Scott's miracle Grow, and about the George Barley Water Prize, where can they go to get that information? is just our, our corporate website, which is scottsmiraclegrow.com. And at that website, we have um, several different tabs that people can investigate to learn more about our company. But, you know, we have a, a tab there called Responsibility, which talks about our commitment to water-positive landscapes. Um, and then, obviously, the George Barley Water Prize will we'll have communications there as well on our website, but also through the Everglades Foundation, you can learn more about that that water prize and how, if you're interested, you can become part of that um, campaign. Terrific. Well, I'll, we'll put show note. We'll put links to the, all those websites on the show notes for this uh, episode, which uh, you'll be able to uh, to reach at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod ninety nine. Um, well, Mark, thanks again. You've been absolutely fantastic. Really appreciated your time today. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure being on your show. Terrific. All right. Bye, Mark. Well, I hope you liked that interview with Mark Slavens of Scott's miracle Grow. Fantastic to hear from him and uh, all, all those water quality issues that have to do with fertilizer. Uh, really thought his, um, his take on uh, East versus West in, in terms of when he was younger and was working out West in the golf course industry. Uh, that was very interesting how it contrasted with uh, the, the water quality issues that he's experienced out East. And, and those water quality issues really are, are spreading nationwide, uh, as are the water quantity issues from the West spreading nationwide. Um, but in any event, fantastic interview. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciated your time. 
Um, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 99. Man, we're at 99 already. Next episode will be number 100. Uh, leave a comment on those show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me using the hashtag watervalues. My, my uh, handle is at DTM1993. Uh, and as I indicated earlier, please don't be bashful about leaving a rating or review uh, on the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn, whatever podcast directory you listen to. Really appreciate that. And I haven't mentioned it for a while, but the Water Values newsletter, we only hit you twice a month. It uh, always talks about some of the more recent podcasts, and we drop a little knowledge on you from uh, you know something going on in the water sector. So go ahead, when you're at thewatervalues.com, go ahead and sign up for the Water Values newsletter. Well, in closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the Disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.